Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 58th episode of the PJ Archive. It's an interview I did with Lionel Bart, the brilliant British writer and composer of hit songs like From Russia With Love, Living Doll, Little White Bull and Do You Mind, and stage musicals such as Things Ain't What They Used To Be, Blitz, Maggie May and of course Oliver. Lionel Bart died in 1999 at the age of 68. This interview took place at his modest home in West London in 1989, when he released a song called Happy Endings Give Yourself a Pinch, which was used to advertise the Abbey National Building Society. Well, let's talk about this the single first of all. How did the uh, idea come about? Was it strictly for the advert that we've been hearing well, about? Well, it was, yes. Yeah. My friend uh, Tim Mellors, who's the creative director of this ad agency, Publicis, asked me if I'd like to do a jingle, which I'd never done before. Right. I mean, I've written jingles, but they were my songs. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was for Abbey National, and I thought, well, it's a fairly anonymous job, and I, okay. I did several notions for this thing to sell two different kinds of mortgages. And it was meant to be a kind of a, a corporate image thing of, of a song that felt as though it had been around a long time, mm. or might be around sort of perennial thing. And I did this and then events changed within Abbey National and I kept changing uh, words. And I kept sending demos in of me singing to a piano, right? And then finally they said, well, perhaps Lionel could do it. By this time we'd met this we'd met a director called uh, Tony Kay, who's won a lot of awards doing commercials. And I liked what he'd done. He showed me some footage of some third world kids playing mm-hmm. improvised games with improvised toys mm-hmm. against the John Lennon soundtrack and it really felt very good, looked good. So then we got a marriage together visually. And the idea being that these kids who didn't know a song dressing up around a piano with a piano and me, sort of inventing the song there and then, which mm-hmm. is kind of what happened. I mean I was around surrounded by these kids saying, Do you know any other don't you know any other tunes, Mr. Can I sit on both your laps? And it was mm-hmm. bedlam, absolute bedlam. Tipped as we said for for the Christmas number one. How do you feel about that? What does that mean to you? After all your success, and does it mean anything still? Well, of course it does. I mean, really, I haven't had anything new in front of the public for about twenty years, mm-hmm. and it is. I mean, the power of TV. I'm getting sassed again by a lot of youngsters in the street. Mm-hmm. I mean, the old cab drivers know me, mm-hmm. but um, both by sight. But the youngsters are. I'm the Abbey National man now, <laughs> and uh, whatever. I'm learning to live with it again. It's a different ball game for me this mm-hmm. time around. I'm enjoying it. At the same time, I'm not projecting too far ahead with that area of my work. Mm. Because, you know, I'm, I'm a show writer. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm working down at the Barbican Royal Shakespeare Company. We're reworking the script of my show Blitz, uh, which I did in 62. But they helped present it uh, September of next year for the 50th anniversary of the Blitz on the docks. So anyway, I'm digressing, Peter. The, the song itself, uh, this Abbey, Abbey Endings one, is quite a sort of um, a light one, light humid one. If you've got a new sort of light rest, you're not taking things so seriously and sort of yeah, whatever I mean, comes, comes. It was very strange the first time around, you know, so I, I started in rock and roll, mm. writing songs that I found, Good Richard and Tommy Steele, mm. Georgie Fame and Billy Fury, and I was in the top 10, solidly for about three years, and I used to, that was my game. And then I kind of got involved in the theatre with Joan Littlewood and down Stratford East, 
we did things ain't what they used to be. And uh, we built the Mermaid Theatre. We did the first show there called Lock Up Your Daughters. And I was running sort of two kinds of careers together, the pop thing and so-called legitimate theatre. And then, of course, I did Oliver, which originally was a vehicle for Tony Steele. Mm. The first three years of my professional career, I was his backroom boy writing his films and stuff. And, of course, Oliver was not... He was too old to play yeah. Oliver the Dodger, and he was too young to play Fagin, and I was yeah. stuck with his seven songs and another yeah. one. So I took, this I took a tape around to various, about 12 different managements with just myself and the secretary singing these seven songs. And they all turned it down, I thought it was too morbid. But OK, we got Oliver on. I guess that's when it happened for me. I sort of woke up the next morning and I was kind of famous. And you know what, this has been a childhood sort of dream to be recognised and to have this thing. Actually dealing with it is another, another poor game because it was like a dream coming true and I was being invited here, there and everywhere. And I was like an actor inside that charade, really. It wasn't for real. I sort of floated into situations, not looking to the left or right of me, really. I, I just really went very lavish with my own income. As it were, I thought I had to reciprocate all this incredible hospitality I was getting. And, um, Did you enjoy it at the time, though? Were well, you of course I had some good times mm. with it. But uh, I could never quite... It's a strange thing. I've, I've, I've met a lot of other people that are writers or performers. It's a self-worth thing. You sometimes think it's so easy for you yeah. that you feel like a bit of a charlatan, really. And uh, I could never really deal with the compliments and the accolades. You know, today, I can handle it a lot easier. What's changed you then? I had a very long set-up. I had a very long sabbatical, I mean. Yeah. I've been calling it my Rip Van Winkle period, because it really, I slept through the 70s. I don't know what happened in the 70s. And, um, Where were you living in the 70s? Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, around. I mean, I've been, I lived in Hollywood, I lived in New York. Mm. I sold my enormous mansion at, 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 at Bolton's, but I kept the Muse house on that I had originally. I had a little Muse in South Kent. And my next door neighbor was old Francis Bacon, painter, and he used to bang on the wall. Well, he used to bring my bell and say, You're not working, I can't hear any decibels. <laughs> I kept that Muse on, and I sort of retired into the, the mm. 70s. I just didn't want to see anybody. But when did it all begin to go wrong for you? I mean, you? You were sort of enjoying all the success, and then did it suddenly go wrong? Was it gradually going wrong? Was it gradually becoming too much for you? Well, in a way, I was surrounded by a lot of bad advice, mm -hmm. and uh, I was taken for a lot of rides. Yeah. Added to that, my mother died and my father died, and uh, the lady that I loved a lot died, Alma Cogan, and uh, my main collaborator, Sean Kenny, died. And it, my bad advice reached an extent where various publishers were saying, we own whatever you write before you write it. So I thought, well, what the hell, why bother? I was living off of my performance royalties anyway, keeping the nose above water, as it were, above vodka. Well, to make a short story a little bit longer, I went on strike. I'd wake up occasionally and have bursts. There were dozens of things on the piano saying, finish it loads of full stars and I did in fact write three shows in that period I wrote in the can I wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame was an opera I wrote Eight Journeys of Gulliver's Travels as a multimedia thing I wrote a musical called La Strada based on a Fellini film they're still there and one day we'll do them so they've yet to be, yet to be performed seen. at all yeah what do you like, think of them now though when you when you look back at them now with well, your new they're not bad I mean some of them are a bit a 
abstract here. Mm. But, uh, but when you hear them, can you remember all the, the way you were feeling at the time? Yeah, so, that's why there are many sad shows, you know. Your first question about how I stepped out of it, well, I, I mm. had a long time to really go through virtually to hell and back alone, really. Mm. Then I had a few years to sort myself out, and uh, I guess things have happened as they're supposed to happen. It wasn't on the cards for this jingle to happen. Yeah. And then for it to become so popular. Yeah. Has this helped pull you through or were you already back on? I was already the on the way, but as yeah. for actually wanting to work or yeah. show off. This gave you the incentive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly did. In a way it's kind of reopened old doors, producers and theatres and things. There's all kinds of things that uh, are being thrust at me. I mean there's a Disney situation. But uh, I'm not projecting too far here. I mean, they're talking now about a follow-up single, and no. Are you now the one that's saying, now steady on, let's take our time? Is yes, I certainly am. Your own experience is telling you this now, just take yeah. it easy, yeah. Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm really sort of handling it. In the day when I say handling I'm smoking too much. I've got so much on this week. I've got to do a bunch of TV interviews, and then I'm off to Birmingham to do paper mill for children in need. And I'm conducting about 2,000 kids that children in need singing one of the songs probably from Oliver. And I don't know how to conduct. I, mean, I, I don't really write music with him. So I have to teach how to conduct. <laughs> so it's going to be all miming as it were. It's not going to be. Well, I should pretend to know it. I mean, their kids probably know the song. Anyway. Kids seem to be a major part of your life. Is this perhaps because they reflect an innocence and a purity which perhaps, I mean, your life got very complicated? Do you look at them and think, gosh, I wish I had that sort of just straightforwardness that uh, they have. Is that how Yeah, you... well, they're a better class of people on the whole kids. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, they're level. I, I yeah. can't really cope with too much affront and too much hypocrisy that does tend to go on. Kids at least level. And uh, in a way, I feel about five years old myself. How much do you regret all the things that have gone on? Or do you actually feel now, because you're so much more experienced in life and sort of better equipped to deal with things, that in fact it was almost quite a good thing that you went through what you did through. I don't know, is there any... Sure, it was a good thing. Sure, I've got no room in my life for regrets. Mm. I mean, if I hadn't done all that, I wouldn't be sitting there talking to you about what we're talking about. I'm very lucky. Really, I've got another lease here. And uh, whether this thing is an enormous success or not, it's by the board, it's a bonus that I've done it. The song, Happy Endings, it's a kind of reflection about how I feel anyway today. Did you ever feel that you wanted to end it all? Or well, suicide? Yeah. Not really. I used to pretend I did, but uh, not really. Mm. I came close to death many times. Through drink? Yeah, from drink, drink and everything else, yeah, yeah but yeah. Um, quite a number of times. But it wasn't meant to happen. I don't know what the great reason is, but it obviously wasn't meant to happen. It seems that what I'm doing today is, is still providing some pleasure, and uh, I still feel very peaceful. Do you uh, feel that music comes as is easy to you now, that this whole work comes easy to you now as it ever did? I mean, do you think that no matter what you've been through, it's still the same old talent that's always going to be there? It's there. It's there. What, of course, is not there is the heavy ambition to sort of hustle it and get it over. You don't need that anymore, do you? No. It's there. I can do it. But uh, I don't have to sort of be ruled by success or failure at this juncture. I can just do the right thing on the day. I just, what happens for me is I just 
people ask me to do things and I put them in a diary and uh, I turn up that day mm -hmm. and to me 50% of the action is turning up as good as you are. I mean, nobody's perfect. Can we, can we go right back to the, to the start of your life and everything? You're basically from the East End, aren't you? Yeah. Right, and, and did you have quite a happy childhood? Happy? Yeah. Well, it was chaotic. Was it? Yeah. It was a massive family. I was the youngest of about 11 kids, or seven that survived infancy. And I was the, an afterthought, really. There was a six-year interval between me and the last one. My folks were ancient, as far as I was concerned. So my hero was my big brother, really. <laughs> And uh, I was out on the streets at a very early age because the house was too crowded. There were always visitors there. And was, nobody ever got to finish a sentence. That's probably that's how I got good at one-liners, really. <laughs> was so I was out on the streets and uh, my eldest sister had a daughter, so, so I was an uncle right. when I was six. I've been an uncle all my life, really. Couldn't call me uncle life, but I've been an uncle forever. I can remember my little niece coming out to the doorstep and saying, come, and I was playing in the street, yeah. Mm. Saying, come on, Uncle Live, your tea's ready. <laughs> and of course, the kids in the street used to sort of move on the road. <laughs> was it quite a musical family you came from, though, wasn't no, it? No, really. Not really, no. I was the only uh, one that was a bit of fire in that respect. I was a bit of a loner as a kid. And I was forever sort of playing with games and charades and making up naughty words to popular songs of the period. I mean, that's what kind of what made me in as part of the gang or in the street. And I was, used to do a lot of drawing with chalks on the pavement. I'm very much of, of the streets of London. It means a lot to me, mm. the colours of it. And I like to be around markets and things. Do you go back to that area to, to get some inspiration? Yeah, quite a lot, but I can get it around any markets mm. in, in London. Because you're very near one here, aren't you? Yeah. It's like when we did Blitz, and Sean Kenny was designing it, he was an Irishman. And he was a genius, really. He was a hundred years ahead of his time. Yeah. Very simple, kind of leprechaun. And he said, what are the colours of London? And I said, well, it's, it's the paving stones. It's the rainbow and a petrol puddle on a paving stone. It's the rainbow mm. and a pigeon's neck. And those are the colours. My music has been influenced a lot by kids' games, street, Avengers, cries. Um, a lot of my music from my bar mitzvah when I was this strange term, ancient Hebrew music, yeah. and uh, I've probably nicked most of it since then. <laughs> I mean, you say it came from those sounds and stuff, but did you listen to, to go to shows and stuff like that? Well, sure. What? I mean, you see, to start with, I was a painter. Right. I, I, when I was 13, I won a scholarship to St Martin's School of Art and right. with a grant, otherwise my parents couldn't have afforded it. And there were just seven of us kids from, from uh, England in this, just after the war, about 1945, 46. And uh, we were there, and I was going to be a commercial artist or a painter. Okay. The first model we had there was Quentin Crisp. Quite incredible. I, I met him about ten years ago, and he said, Lionel Beglighter, that's my real name. I said, how on earth do you remember my real name? He said, well, when you were 13, he said, and I was a model at St. Martin's All Right. I remember it because it was a DJ when you actually had a conversation with me and mm. in, the, in the middle of a rest you spoke mm. to me. And nobody had talked to me for two and a half years. Because <laughs> he was outlandish for the time. He yep. had all these bloody uh, open sandals with the nail polish mm. of the dyed hair. Mm. People would cross the streets mm. to avoid him. Yeah. So I mean, I got expelled from that school a few times because I was a, a bit of a scallywag. But I persevered on it. And the painting was my first thing. I had an mm. exhibition in the White Chapel Art Gallery when I was about 18. 
Do you still paint? No. Why did you give them that? Well, I don't know. I guess I thought I wasn't as good as I should be. Mm. Um, and I guess I got involved in the theatre. I felt it was a kind of lonely job. I met somebody in the Air Force called a printer, silk screen printer, called mm. John Gorman, and we yeah. started a business when mm -hmm. I came around, which is a, now the finest, or the biggest silk screen printing business in Europe. But we worked for three years, day and night, to get this yeah. thing together. From a little basement under a sweet shop in Hackney. It's now a big firm. But after three years, I started working in amateur theatre at the Unity, painting scenery and then finally writing reviews. For who? Well, for that theatre. It was right. a place called the right. Unity Theatre. There's a book just come out on the history of the Unity Theatre right. about Colin Chambers and I'm in it a bit. But I was painting scenery and they were doing a review, a satirical review about the new Elizabethan era. It was about the coronation, mm -hmm. 1953. Alfred Bass was directing it. Mm -hmm. Guy was in Bootsy and Snatch and Dad's Army. He was a great guy, he's mm -hmm. not with us now. But he put a note on the board saying anyone wants to write songs for this review, and I just did a couple for a joke, mm -hmm. really. Had you never done it before? No, really, no. He just dragged me out of the scene painting, painting, he said, You're a songwriter. So it's really down to him. And of course, at that period in the early 50s, 52, 53, I'd sort of left home and I was stomping around Soho doing skippers. Mm -hmm sleeping around Soho, and it was the time of the coffee bars and the beginning of rock and roll mm -hmm. in this country. A lot of my fellow art students from St. Martin's School like I'd become musicians. Mm. So uh, I was just hanging out in Soho, and that's where I met Tony Steele and Lee from the Merchant Navy, and we started this band, the Cavemen. And he had two weeks leave, and two weeks on, two weeks leave, and one leave. He actually recorded a song, somebody slapped him up, as the first teenage rock and roller that we've ever had in this country. So, well, what happened on that was it was a hit instantly. It went to number one and called Rock with a Cable. Rock with a Cable, yeah. yeah. <laughs> then I was just back when we had to write the Tommy Still story in about three weeks about his life. It was meant to emulate, it was a, f a successful film about rock and roll with uh, Bob Haley right. called Rock Around the Clock. Bill Haley, yeah. Bill Haley, yeah. Bill Haley. I sort of said, well, we're telling Tommy Still story. He's only 19, but he's been in the Merchant Navy. Right. He's been to the, right. he's been to the Caribbean, so we need Calypso. Right. We need some Cockney stuff. So we did it, and about five songs out of this film went into the top ten, and the album was went to number one. And then I wrote three more films for him: The Duke wore jeans, and Tommy the Tory, the Bob, mm -hmm. things like Little White Bull, and oh, that sort of nonsense. And at the same time I found Cliff Richard, I was asked to do four songs for a film called Serious Charge. As I don't know when I just seen Cliff, who was being Elvis Presley. <laughs> and I wrote four songs, including The Living Doll Thing. And so it was kind of a hand in glove thing. I was doing this pop thing, and I was really heavily into that. And at the same time, the theatre thing was happening with uh, Bernard Miles at the Mermaid and the Joan Littlewood at Stratford East. Right. And of course we wound up as partly responsible, certainly very much involved in the beginning of rock and roll in this country, mm. in the creation of the teenage market. Are you still in touch with Cliff Richard, Tommy Steele? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Have yeah. they been in touch with you throughout all this? No, not really. No. Not really. I mean, I was the best man at Tommy's wedding. I introduced him to his old lady. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a godfather many times over. <laughs> I really am. And so many nieces and great nieces and great nephews. I used to send them presents on my birthday because it would be like two a day. 
a bit better now. I sort of spend time with them. It was Oliver basically the the main one which got you really noticed through, throughout the world, basically? Yeah. Had you been waiting for a really big blockbuster, or, or do you not... Well, sure, I mean, you, you imagine, you see, when I first started, there weren't any English songs in the charts. I mean, we, we kind of created a thing on the pop area. The idea of musicals, uh, we were just importing Broadway musicals. Mm. And of course, when we did Oliver, we knew we had a world one, you see. Mm. And when we opened up Broadway in '62, in the middle of a press strike, I mean, it was a smash. And I won the, the Tony Award for Broadway, which I think I'm the first one to get it. I was kind of aware something had happened when we opened in London in this heat wave. And uh, I walked away from the theatre for the first 20 minutes or something, went wrong with the set, nobody else noticed it. I took a walk round to Power Square every day and I came back. There was the owner, said Sir Donald Aubrey, with the head of wooden leg and thinking about, come on, lie on, commissionaire. I could hear this noise coming from the theatre. And because they write negative scenarios, I thought they were shouting awful. And, uh, that sounded like boo awful, but was it? it was awful. Huh? And of course, I wasn't ready for that. Yeah. I was just shoved on the stage. The whole house lights were up. They were concentrating 35 curtain calls. Yeah. And it was like a wave, incredible wave, and I made some kind of dumb speech. Then one night in the Charles Dickens or whatever. And the audience wouldn't leave the theatre with mm. the heat wave. They just came onto the stage. And it was just a, one of those nights when you knew something incredible yeah. had happened. Yeah. And the next day was my real birthday. So yeah. it's kind of strange for people. Yeah. Did you kind of think when that launched you basically that uh, what on earth is this Yisen kid doing with all this success? Is that, is that how you Yeah. Well, what happened for me was uh, the barriers, class things. I mean, uh, I was a constant guest at Wolverine with Duke and Dash at Bedford and I became very close friends with Noel Coward, uh, who was one of my idols. Mm. I mean, I got his library book, his books, I, I learned a lot about lyric writing from Noel and W.S. Gilbert. And, uh, we just became great friends, and he was always inviting me over to Jamaica and St. Moritz. And then, in fact, when Oscar Hammerstein died later on, about 64, Richard Rogers wanted me to be his partner. Yeah. All my sort of idols and icons. And it's hard to handle, because yeah. I just really felt like this kid, you know? Yeah, yeah I'd blown a lot of situations. I talked Richard Rogers into writing his own lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> I really, you know, there was a period when Bertrand Russell wanted me to do a musical with him, and I spent four weekends in Wales. I mean, all the icons of one's childhood and telling you with them, it's quite something. So how, how does it feel to know that, I mean, even now, all over the country, there are productions of Oliver going on and, and many of your songs being performed left, right and centre? I mean, well, it's a nice feeling, you know. Mm. It's a nice feeling. I remember seeing a profile of uh, the man, the writer, Isaac Bashevis Singer, mm -hmm. who won a Pulitzer Prize. Mm -hmm. No, no, the Nobel Peace Prize. And he's this old guy in New York who writes his books, right? And a clause in his contract was that the publishers must print a half of their output in Yiddish, which is uh, how he started writing for the Yiddish newspaper in New York. Of course, nobody reads that language today, hardly. But there he is, he's won the Nobel Peace Prize, he comes back to New York, and the reporter said to him, well, when you 
are you happy? Are you surprised? And he said, of course I'm happy, of course I'm surprised, but how long can a man stay happy and surprised? That's right, that's true. That's good. You know, it's, of course it's very nice. If I was one for getting into recrimination and resentment areas, I mean, I, I was advised badly to sell my rights in Oliver. So I don't earn anything out of any stage or film production or whatever. I get... Does that hurt? I bet it does. Well, I'm used to that now uh, in that area. I mean, I get performing royalties over the radio, TV on the work, and film. But Were you pleased with the film? Well, yeah, I, I had my name over it. Yeah, I, was I, t- I chose everybody on it. It's um, quite sad, Mark Lester and... Um, Jackie Wilde? Yeah, he, he's, they just disappeared, really, haven't they? Well, as so often happens with the youngsters, you know, uh, it's, they get inundated with a lot of uh, leggers around them, mm. people. And it was tough for me, I can imagine how it must have been no, for sure. them. After Oliver, I did a couple of film scores for Mark. I did Black Beauty, and there was Prince of the Pauper. Jackie Wilde did a few things, and they faded into, they, they went the, the, the route of high living, you know. Yeah. But what about, um Oliver itself, what do you think is the secret of that? Because, I mean, loads of people all over the country absolutely adore it and it has an extraordinary magic. What is that magic, do you think? Where does it come from? Well, it's a good story. It's about a kid's search for love and everybody else is looking for it as well in that piece. Um, the imagery is strong. People don't know what about that kid with the bow. They just know. And I myself, all I tried to do was to tell the story simply. Um, Why did you tackle that story? Why did you choose Oliver Twist? Well, as I say, it was initially meant to be a vehicle for Tommy Steele, mm-hmm. but then when I got with it, I realised that uh, it was a good one. I had to do some things. I had to sort of merge four or five characters into one of the main places. He had a lot of subplots. But then, of course, Charles Dickens about those things as kind of comic strips. They were like serial soapboxes, really. So it was like the ongoing saga. Mm-hmm. And so consequently, Fagin was written as a black and white villain. And I just put a third dimension onto that character. Yeah. Is Oliver your favourite too? Is that the one because of the success it, it gave you? Uh, well, obviously, it has to be. I have to be very attached to it. Mm-hmm. The, the show that I enjoyed doing most was Things Ain't What They Used to Be. Right. Because that was just a, a ball to do. Was that ball. more you, though, do you think? Well, it was organic. It was an ensemble thing. Yeah. We started with things yeah. what it used to be. Because she had these actors, her ensemble, which included like Richard Harris, James Booth, Brian Murphy, Eva Joyce, great bubble wings, a great team of people getting about £15 a week each. And they had to put the sh- a show on two weeks and they had 18 pages of script. I was on the case and we just went to rehearsals every day and I would come in the next day with songs and Frank Allen would be there. The actors were improvising dialogue. It was like growing all the time. Even at the opening night for the press room, the national press room, Joan came to me just before the intermission and she said, Lyle, we need a song for Act Two. Can you write a song about the menace of this villain you don't see called Meatface? And you'd be this busker and come on three times and say, I'll give you the cues. And she'd have all the actors to freeze when you come on in the street outside. So I had 20 minutes to write a song about this meat face character for this busker. And with two reprises, 
change the lyrics. Then I had to find the costume, an old trench coat, some big old boots, black attitude, an old bowler, under the stage, to the orchestra pit, maracas and a castanet, up to the canteen for a couple of spoons, mm. and I was on, and it worked, you mm. see. And I played it for two weeks, and then George Sewell had to play it for a year after that. Are you pleased with the song you did? Yeah, I'm pleased with the entire show, because yeah. it's totally honest. It's, of, it's totally about what was going on mm. in London at that time. Mm. I mean, David Merritt was going to do it in New York with yeah. subtitles mm. splashed onto it under the stage because it was like in Villains Argo, it wasn't a straight right. company. But on the other hand, I've got some friends from Texas. In fact, Judy Garland came to see it seven times and understood it perfectly because she got behind the rhythms. It's a true piece and I look at it today and it stands. You can always tell about humour and truth and if it's right, it's right. Mm. But where does this inspiration come from. Do you have any idea where, is this sort of, do you see it as a gift from above or what, or where does this extraordinary talent come from? Well, we've all got our gifts, mate. But yours is a lot more powerful than most, isn't it? I don't know, I get very inspired by people, and um, I'm not good at working alone, that's why I gave up painting. Mm -hmm. This last couple of weeks, I got very inspired by going to see a circus. Uh, I went to see this uh, French circus at Clapham Corner. It's what it's about, I wanted to join a circus at the end yeah. of that. standing ovation just mm. said well we are here and we pay so much for our seats in the room mm. it wasn't there was a lot of students in and it was a real audience and the, there's a real ensemble thing going with the circus mm. and that's inspired me to want to do something new right also on this record we started with the ad the ad was directed by Tony Kay right. and we found a new way of actually filming songs and the result of it is that I think we've got a new way of doing film musicals. Uh -huh. And so I'm turning to New York now, I'm seeing someone on Thursday. Yeah. We're going to talk about a feature movie. Right. Involving what? What about, you know? Well, we don't really know yet. I mean, for instance, I can tell you that this time we recorded me and those same advertisement kids making right. a record. Right. And it is really of them making a record. Yeah. They're playing instruments out in the control room. Mm. So we thought, well, we'd, for the moment, we take the kids other places. We can go to a fashion show catwalk and do a song about mm. it. Or are we thinking of going to Battersea Dog's home? And I'm going to do a dog song. And just see where it leads us. You say you'd like to work with some... Would you consider working with, say, Lloyd Webber or someone like that? Or would well, you... Has he sort of become... He's taken over your mantle, hasn't he, for the for the 80s, as it were? My mantle? <laughs> well, is I mean, a bit? it's a different ball game, really. The marketing of musicals in the way that Lord Weber and Schoenberg Boogie do it is a different thing. What do you think of their musicals? Do you like them? I won't be drawn into that. There's enough critics around. No, I've, um, some, of it, some of it I approve of, some of it I don't. Have you been to see them all, though? Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you think, as far as musicals are concerned, things ain't what they used to be? I won't say that. Well, of course they're changing all the time. Yeah. I mean, look, the word musical is an invented word. The word opera. Operetta. Now let's take, say, Operetta, Wilbur Sullivan, where before radio, TV, and video, there were people going out and singing these songs, mm. or arias. There were messenger boys whistling them on bikes. But Offenbach, and I've, he's been an influence, so is Gershwin for me, and Kurt Weill, and Offenbach, and his musicals, Operettas. The plot was insignificant, really. They had four intervals. 
And you always just used to flaunt about in between the indoors, go to each other's boxes and uh, have a lot of merriment. And, uh, mm. But the songs were marvellous. And the book was just a, a link for the song. It's changed. Now, opera, okay. I consider that Gershwin's opera, Porgy and Bess, is grand. I mean, the recitative inside there belongs to the music. The main central theme of Porgy and Bess is uh, summertime and all the other songs belong. That's what I try and do with my mm. stuff. Uh, in Oliver, the root song is Where is Love? Is I wrote that first of all. Right. Is there a favourite song in Oliver and a favourite character in Oliver that you particularly... Uh, Not really. No. But I can tell you the first song I wrote was the kids' song, Where is Love? Yeah. I wrote it in the car. And the rest of it came from that, really. I think we have a changing form ahead of us. Um, I don't know about recitative and whether people want to hear um, put two more sugars in the tea sung. <laughs> I mean, if it's trite dialogue and trite music, it doesn't work for me. What else would you like to do other than musicals? <sighs> well, okay, I'm playing with film at the moment. Right at the moment, right. playing with film. Would you like to start performing properly? Ah, uh, there's a thing. I'm not letting that take over too much right. because um, it may develop. I can't see if there's a precedent here. I mean, because basically I'm a showman. Whether I turn into some kind of Burl Ives figure, I don't know. I don't know. Are you worried about pressures maybe taking over you again, all that sort of thing? Or if you just drink out and everything else? Or do you I don't drink. I haven't drank for four or five years now, but uh, it's something else. Are well, you quite strict on yourself now, though? Are you quite disciplined? Yeah, I get up in the mornings and the mornings I don't go to a gym, I uh, I work in the mornings. I never used to, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd work for say three days and nights and then party for three days and mm. sleep for three days. Sure. Right. Oh no, Carol said to me, dear boy, you're probably working your spare time. <laughs> Which is true, I do. But somehow, God knows how, I thought I was Superman and tried to live up to being Superman by various aids and distances but we did get six shows on in town mm. at the same time but do you see yourself as a totally did you look back at maybe photographs of yourself in those days and think that's a totally different person in many ways yeah, yeah. in many ways um, it was sort of manic so I thought I was going to change the world you went out in the town with a lot of stars and things, you? oh yeah a lot of time with Judy Garland and uh, God I can't go through a whole list of people <laughs> Would you like to maybe get back with all the sort of showbiz crowd again, or are you, are you tired of that? Have you had that, done that? Well, I've done that, frankly. Yeah. Um, I, I tend to avoid going to uh, openings. Yeah. And, uh, I tend to avoid too much of the showbiz uh, gossip and nonsense that goes yeah. down. And so I can't really buy into all that. What, what sort of dreams and ambitions do you have now? What sort of um, hopes do you have personally? I haven't got any really... Any great girl. I just like to continue as I am growing. You know. mm. I suppose it would be nice to, uh, my old dream was to be this old beach coma mm. on a desert island somewhere mm. <laughs> and have lots of visitors uh, coming to see me. Um, in a way, I can, it's still kind of a vision, but uh, for the moment I'm just, I'm going to get a, a place in London on one level, that's not to anticipate the wheelchair, but I just somewhere with a little garden. And then possibly I'll get somewhere down by the coast here in, in England. Because having travelled and lived around the world, mm -hmm. I still prefer being in England. Do you, do you still feel that you belong to the East End of London? Is that I still feel that they're my roots, for sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. For 
sure. I had a good time in Australia. I went there for the first time a couple of years ago. Some kids, in fact, again, invited me over and sent me a ticket. They had a plane ticket. And they were, 200 kids were doing a production of my show Blitz. That's what gave me the idea to do it again. Here. What was it initially on Blitz? 62. Did it have a good, successful. Well, yes, uh, it was a most enormous show. I mean, you couldn't stage it today under about 8 million pounds. Uh, mm. Really mammoth thing. But it made three times its investment for everybody. Right. And uh, it was a very large show. Have you changed it a lot? We're making some fairly drastic change in the script. Who's doing it? Ah, we don't know. Anyone famous? Yeah, we need a sort of uh, one only. Right. Who was the leading lady in the original? Well, she wasn't one only. She was a lady called Amelia Bainton. And um, without doing it down, she really couldn't stay the base too well. Who who of the current crop of um, musical talent would you actually like to work with? Uh, Well, I wouldn't mind working with this John Caird guy, the director. I'd like to meet with him. I'd like to sort of meet with the designer that has obviously been influenced a lot by Sean Kenny. What's his name? The guy that's done Les Miserables. Oh, right. Napier? Napier. Napier. Yeah. It's, um, I can work with anybody, really. It's uh, of the the new blood. I mean, I do like what Russell is doing. Although Blood Brothers is not what I would call a musical. It's really a a play with songs, which which is basically what things in what they used to be, was a play with songs. I don't know the man, but I like his work. Yeah. There's a lot of people I admire, yeah. and uh, I'm sort of running into them all again. So, as I say, I'm catching up yeah. with who, who, who is about this new. Do you think you've got another Oliver inside you? About I've got another. I've, uh, I'm sure. I guess I've got. I've got the publisher. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Do you watch television a lot? Do you go to the theatre or something? Yeah, I go to the theatre in batches. I go. Right. I sort of something. I have a month for. I just do a lot of theatre. Right. A lot of movies. But. Uh, I'm too busy being on it now. And yeah. <laughs> it's really. Uh, Are you going to go on top of the pops? Well, I can't know if it gets into the top of the pops, which I believe we're all young. When was your last number one? Was it, was that, um, well, that thing, Revival of Cliffs, was, I guess, it got to number one. Yeah. Mm. Before that, what was. Before that, I don't know. The original were living door. That got to number one, yeah. too, but my last, I don't know. See, they're, they're in the annals of history. <laughs>